This webinar recording is brought to you by Islam and Liberty Network. If you're looking for more, you can find it on our website at islamandlibertynetwork.org. Mustafa Achar is Professor of Economics at Erbakan University at Konya, Turkey. He has published extensively in national and international academic journals, authored 14 books, translated 12 books, and contributed 37 chapters in edited books. Our host for the webinar is Ali Salman. The topic is Reason vs. Tradition, The Intellectual Battle in Muslim Thought. Reason versus tradition, the mentality problem, okay? The mentality is extremely important in my opinion. It is a perspective, it is a window through which we look at the reality. It is the way of looking at things. It is the way of reading the sources. It is the way of understanding, interpreting, and explaining the reality surrounding us, making judgments, and determining the way we act. So, in any social issue, political issue, economic issue, in order to understand why people act so, why people think this way, why are we in such a situation? I think one of the most determining factors, extremely important, is uh, the issue of mentality, the mindset. The more general starting point is this. Look at the outlook of the Muslim world today. Look at Syria and Iraq, particularly. Look at the Middle East in a broader sense. Look at the Muslim world from uh, Tunisia or uh, from Morocco all the way up to, you know, Anatolia, Middle East, uh, Caucasia, Central Asia, East Asia, uh, up to Indonesia and Malaysia. Putting exceptions aside, we can I think we would agree that the outlook is not very good. The outlook is not very bright. Economic backwardness, technological backwardness, political and economic instability in many Muslim countries, civil unrest, and bad macroeconomic indicators, lower than the world average, GDP per capita is lower, infant mortality is high, literacy rate comparatively lower, health and educational condition is not so bright, and when we look at the conditions of individual rights and liberties, democracy, the rule of law, political participation of the people to the uh, decision-making you know, processes is not very good. In terms of free market economy, we have problems. When we look at the performance of Muslim countries in terms of corruption index, the situation is not good. Human development index, the situation is not very bright. Similarly, transparency index, innovation index, world competitiveness index, and easiness of doing business in, uh, index do not show very bright uh, results for the Muslim countries. So, it is logical to ask, why is the situation in this way? Why we are not seeing a more brighter, more stable, stronger, more developed Muslim world? Was the situation always this way or back in the history, was it different? It is obvious that the history, back in the history, up until 13th, 14th century, the Muslim civilization had a you know, golden age, if you like, from 
8th to 13th century, it was the Muslim world who pioneered the scientific advances, innovations in medicine, in algebra, in mathematics, in medicine, in uh, astronomy, etc., etc. Once upon a time, something happened. Some factors somehow came into being, come together, uh, interacting with each other. The situation has turned down. And then for centuries now, at least three to 400 centuries, the situation of the Muslim world is not going up, but unfortunately going down. What would be the reason? Then one can think of many, as a social scientist, I am aware of the danger of reductionism, putting all the uh, weight into one single factor and saying that this is the reason why we are in this situation. This is dangerous. I know, I know that. <clears throat> I know for sure that there are a lot of political, economic, cultural, historical, maybe geographical reasons behind any social event to go that way or this way. I know for sure. But yet we can enumerate, we can finger out at least some of them among many other social, economic, political factors. One, would, I would say, the as a turning point, as a determining factor, uh, I would pinpoint a political historical factor as the Mongol invasion of the 13th century and the fall of Baghdad in 1258, okay? And the ruining of all the uh, collected books and the madrasas and the uh, libraries and all the accumulation of knowledge and the human uh, resources have been ruined at that time uh, during the Mongol invasions. And then, in my opinion, the trauma that created by the Mongol invasion has not been overcome yet by the Muslim countries, in a sense. Psychologically, it is there somewhere still affecting us uh, uh, in many ways. The other one, the other reason, uh, why we are in this situation, why the Muslim world had uh, become uh, underdeveloped or weaker, unstable countries from east to west is the intellectual reason, I would say, intellectual, philosophical reason. And then this makes us the topic of uh, today's discussion is, okay, once upon a time, two mentality, two ways of looking at things in the Muslim world were in battle, they were fighting, they were challenging against one another, okay? There were schools of thought, schools of fiqh, jurisprudence, as well as school of akhaid, school of uh, akhida or faith uh, in the Muslim world, all right? Uh, I think we can uh, classify the many different schools under two uh, broad uh, categories. One is the school of reason, the other one is the school of tradition. Uh, in more uh, traditional terminology, you would say Ahl al-Ray versus Ahl al-Hadith. Determining characteristics of school of reason was free will, interpretation, and rationalism, aql. On the other hand, the determining characteristics of school of hadith or ahl al-hadith was tradition, matl, instead of aql, 
It is Nakl, imitation of the previous generations, imitation of Salaf, Salafis, and Fatalism, Qadar, and Literalism. So, three characteristics of school of Ray was Aql, or reason, interpretation, and free will, as opposed to Makil, tradition, Fatalism, and Literalism. That means, there is a predetermined destiny, fatalism. There is nothing much we can do about it. The belief that, okay, our qadr, our faith has been determined somewhere, has been written, and then we are passive subject vis-a-vis -vis the predetermined uh, destiny. On the other hand, uh, the school of uh, reason or ahlulay believe that human beings have free will. They determine the actions by their free will, hence the responsibility. They are responsible, why? Because human beings have the free will. Reason versus uh, tradition, that means, okay, is reason, aql, a source, a reliable source of making judgment? And then I said, yes, of course, obviously. On the other hand, the Ahli Hadith school put more weight on tradition, nakil, transmitted information, or the text, the thing that has been written by the previous generations before us, precedes matter or ray, or something that we generate through reasoning. Something, uh, interpretation is accordingly. If there is a contradiction between aql and matl. According to school of ray, school of reason, we interpret it. Aql take the preceding role, okay, and we can interpret the text by using our aql, our reasoning, our logic, syllogism, etc., etc. We can use our own abilities, our resources to make new judgments. Ishtihad innovation, new interpretations, etc., etc. On the other hand, uh, according to Al-Hadith, almost everything with regard to religion and uh, also social issues, uh, uh, because religion encompasses everything, including social and political issues, everything has been done, has been said, has been revealed, has been written. So, what we should do is to imitate, to follow up, to follow the footprints of the previous generations. No interpretation. We have to take as is, take the text as is, no interpretation, will, and uh, we are subject to a predetermined uh, destiny, and we have to take muckle uh, over uh, reasoning. There are many uh, prominent figures who, you know, uh, led this uh, way of thinking and who took some role in this battle, uh, especially when we say Ahlulay, Abu Hanifa, uh, Imam Awam Abu Hanifa, uh, who is the, you know, uh, founding father of Hanafiya school, is the pioneer of the Ahlulay uh, school. Also, Mutazilites, the school of Mutaziliya, uh, also, uh, fall in this category, and Maturudiyya, uh, in terms of school of faith, mazhab of faith, uh, 
uh, Imam Maturidi and Maturidiya school, we can also add Ibn Rushd uh, of Andalusia and uh, Ibn Khaldun, uh, like uh, scholars like Ibn Khaldun, Ibn Rushd and some others, also follow this way, who put more weight on reasoning, theologism, logic, innovation, free will, interpretation and rationalism. On the other hand, we see Imam Shafi, Ahmed bin Hanbal, Al-Ash'ari, Al-Ghazali, Juwaini, Fahreddin Razi, you know, many other prominent figures followed the other way, and the Hadith. And then, somehow, at one point in time, this school, the second one, Ahl Hadith, the school of tradition, won the battle against Ahl Bayh. And as a result, we preferred literalism as opposed to interpretation. We preferred, as you know, I'm talking about the Muslim Ummah in general. Of course, there are uh, exceptions. There are some, you know, people who always try to go the other way around, but in general, in general, in the Muslim world, uh, school of hadith became the dominant mentality and the tradition, imitation, patriotism, literalism, and scripturism uh, became the dominant way of thinking. And as a result, we were against innovation. We were against, uh, you know, the many scientific advancements. We were uh, somehow put some distance between us uh, with, you know, liberal values. Uh, freedom, pluralism, cooperation with uh, non-Muslims, etc., etc. So we preferred to 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 become closed borders, and then, uh, we uh, developed hesitation or suspicion against others, outsiders, uh, non-Muslims. Uh, we preferred literalism and capitalism. That led to eventually led to the negative outlook in the Muslim world, I would say. One thing, one thing uh, that is, you know, uh, catching attention is the fact that Iraq Kufa school, where Imam Azam Ibn Hanifa was also included, put great importance on aql, reason, ishtihad, new opinion and judgment, and we interpretation. When on the other Ahl Hadith said, religion is about nast, khabar, asar, riwayah, narration, and taqlim of salah. That means imitation of the previous generations. Okay? So, these two mentalities are among the major determining factors of the social, political conditions of the Muslim world today. I think uh, taking into consideration all the situation now, economic, political, historical, as well as the situation in Iraq, Syria, uh, Afghanistan, um, Egypt, uh, here and there. If we want to change the situation, that means we are weaker than the outsiders, we are not able to solve our problems, internal, even internal problems among ourselves through discussion, through dialogue, through uh, cooperation, economic cooperation, political cooperation, diplomacy, etc. We are asking outside powers to come in and intervene. Uh, this is not uh, something desirable to me. If we want to change the situation, we I would like to refer back to the Quranic verse. I said, if a P 
people, if a column, if a community do not change what is in itself, internal situation, Allah will not change their situation. This is the Quranic verse, okay? In other words, I would offer to stop blaming outsiders, imperialists, or, uh, you know, Westerners, here and there, you know, the, the uh, bad guys, outside powers, to be in charge of, to be responsible for every negative thing that we are suffering from, I would put it aside. Yes, there might be, of course, a role played by the imperialism, colonization, Western powers, uh, military invasion, etc., etc. I'm not uh, rejecting that, or I'm not ignoring that, but the more determining, the more prominent one is the internal situation, the mentality. If we want to change our situation to become a better one, then we have to start changing from within. The situation from within, if we want to come together, you know, uh, exchange ideas, Think about what we are in this way. What would be the possible situation? How can we revive the historical, you know, uh, Islamic uh, accumulation in terms of ishtihad, innovation, using akal, reason, etc., etc.? Then we can hope that our situation will start to change. Otherwise, we will keep blaming outside powers from all the negative things, for all the negative things we are suffering from, and there is not going to change anything. We will keep uh, crying. We will keep in this miserable situation, unfortunately. So I would prefer, I would suggest that let's, friends, go back to our history, reread the discussions, the mentality problems, the intellectual battle that we had in, back in the history, and then start changing from that, uh, based on our, you know, historical uh, accumulation uh, and the experience, let's start changing something in terms of way of thinking, way of understanding, way of interpreting the reality, start changing our situation in that regard, mentality-wise, then we are going to see something changing in social life, in economic-wise, in political-wise, etc. Uh, that is uh, for for the time being. I would uh, what I would have to say. Uh, uh, once again, uh, thank you for coming, and uh, I would like to thank you for listening. Uh, all right. Um, so uh, thank you so much, uh, Mustafa, for um, uh, opening um, this this webinar by the, by presenting your uh, analysis. And uh, you have presented an argument uh, suggesting this contest within the Muslim thought itself, the Ahlul Hadith and Ahlul, and Ahlul Rai. So the, this is a contest between, according to you, uh, uh, between the school of reason and school of tradition. Um, now we will uh, move on uh, to question and answers. Um, uh, participants can uh, either type the questions or can ask for permission to actually speak right into the seminar uh, and then I will um, I will turn on uh, the, the, the microphone but just to begin the conversation uh, let me ask one uh, let me ask one question um, um, and that is uh, this this contest which uh, Mustafa you have uh, laid down in um, sort of a historical sense do you think that this contest is um, has still some life is it 
in current Muslim majority countries? Is this kind of contest happening or this division still valid or not? Sorry, can, can you uh, repeat the question again? Sorry. <laughs> uh, yes, briefly, um, the, the contest which you explained in historical sense, the contest between the two schools, is it still going on in the Muslim societies or do you think that this was something just in the past? Uh, okay, good question. Thank you. Uh, I think it is still on. Even though, even though the battle was won by the second one, the school of tradition, to the extent that even the followers of Hanafiya, okay, uh, in many parts of the Muslim world, Hanafiya school is dominant. Now, yet, you know, if you are a follower of Hanafiya school, that means you are expected to put a greater importance on akal reason, reasoning, syllogism, okay, qiyas, uh, and maslahat al-musala, and the, you know, the, the customs and other social factors in terms of making judgments. And also, uh, Imam Azam Abu Hanifa said clearly that, okay, I am not going to take the weak hadith as the source to my judgment. I am going to use ray, ishtihad, or akal to make new judgments, okay? Uh, the other school, on the other hand, the, on the school of tradition, if there is a hadith in, in front of us, then there is no way to go to look for other sources for the judgment. You, you, you should use Quran, if not, uh, Sunnah, if there is a Hadith, even if it is a big one, you should use that, okay? Then we say, I am the follower of uh, Abu Hanifa. What are you expected to do? You are, you are expected to use your reasoning, right? Syllogism, logic, to make judgment, to make ishtihad. Yet, in the Muslim world, what we look, uh, look at is, still, we are still using weak Hadith, without even uh, criticizing it. And then uh, we are using the hadith, all sorts of hadith, you know, Melvo, the, you know, the uh, fake ones, even fake ones, the, uh, the, there are thousands of thousands of weak and uh, not sound and uh, uh, fake uh, hadith, yet we are still using those in order to make our living, find our way. This is, this is something unacceptable to me. Did the famous phrase, uh, you should remember, the, 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 the door for ishtihad has uh, shut. Uh, somehow, you know, the, maybe a hundred years ago, maybe even longer than before that, somebody said, this is, these are Muslim scholars or Mashaikh or whoever, you know, some pioneer, uh, people, prominent figures in the Muslim said, uh, the door for ishtihad has shut down. Then, then we are not using, we are not uh, following the Ahlul Ray uh, school anymore. We are going on the other way. So, we can see the implications of the fact that school of Hadith has become dominant and won the battle against the Ray, you can see every at almost every corner of the Muslim world that we are uh, fatalist rather than free will, pro free will. We are using 
the narrated information, previous generations text as our source, as our guide, rather than the one that we can, today's scholars, current scholars can make the judgments, the information, the, the uh, knowledge that can be produced by the current scholars, we are referring more to the previous generation's text and the narrated information. Then it comes to, okay, why are we in such a situation in Syria? Because technologically we are weak. Why are we technologically weak? Because we are not uh, using our human resources. We are not able to use our human resources in our own land. The most clever, most smart researchers, uh, intellectuals, or social scientists, or uh, you know, uh, engineers, are moving towards Western countries, United States, Germany, uh, you know, uh, England, etc. Why are we uh, facing this situation? Because the conditions, social, political, and individual rights and liberty conditions is not very appealing in our own country. That's why they are moving towards West. So we are in our almost everyday life, we are facing the implications of this battle. Reason versus tradition, you know, capitalism versus free will. It is there if we can see it. It is there in our everyday life. Thank you, Mustafa. There is a question uh, by Mohammed Amin. I believe that you can also read it from the screen. How realistic is it to expect organized religious institutions to change as uh, Achar proposes? In my view, the appropriate model for society is to separate the state from religion and for each citizen to reach their own religious uh, decisions. This is both a comment and a question. So over to you, Mustafa. Okay, good question. Hard question. Hard question, they say. This is associated with or related with the important problem of secularism, okay, versus religiosity. Are we going to have a religious state or should secularism or laicism should dominate? Uh, should we separate religion and state, church and state, as they say in the English-speaking world, or should the government in a Muslim society should be religious, should be following a religious school? Uh, that is the question. In my opinion, based on my experience, I can see the clear danger of organized religion to be the shaping factor of the government, of the state. If we give government in the service of any religion or any religious schools, right? That means it is highly likely that the political leaders, that our governors, our administrators would make life a misery for us, for those who are not thinking in their way. Because there is not a single one religious interpretation. There are schools, madahid, sects, you know, Shiite versus Sunni. Within Sunni school, there are a number of other schools, other interpretations based on their historical experience, social conditions, etc., etc. There are many different ways or interpretations of religion. 
how are we going to apply the religious uh, principles into my life differs from one person to another, one segment of society to another segment. That's why it is extremely dangerous to give the government in the service of any mazhab, right? In that regard, I agree with Muhammad Amin that organized religion should not be the determining or governing factor of any Muslim state. Yet, yet, if we allow democratic, plural decision-making processes, okay, free and just elections, then it is highly likely that the sensitivities of the Muslim community would be reflected in the decision-making body. In that regard, we are hopeful that in a Muslim society, our rulers will take into account our uh, sensitivities, our beliefs, whatever. Uh, to that extent, I am okay living in a Muslim society, in a democratic, plural society, so that I can have a say to, you know, uh, warn the decision-making bodies through elections, through some other political participation mechanism, etc. Uh, they are going to give a listen to my demand, my uh, my uh, warnings, but I don't want them. I don't want them to rule the government in accordance with any specific uh, religious school, because as we see in our societies, there are very very intolerant, uh, understanding intolerant people, very you know conservative on certain issues, they do not want to see as a different body. They want us, they want you to become as one of them, to follow their own way, or at least to be silent when it comes to social disputable issues. That's why uh, we can see a battle, uh, clash, social clash or religious clash between different mazhab in uh, here and there, in Turkey, in Iran, in Pakistan, in you know, uh, different parts of the Muslim world. Uh, in, even today, there are conflicts and the clashes between different religious schools. That's why I am pro-secularism in its right sense. That means the government should be an impartial body, impartial, as a, as a uh, ruler, as a Referee, as a referee, all right, putting the rules, rules of competition, rules of, you know, rule of law and the constitution and the laws, etc. And then allowing people to go their own way. As long as you do not oppress me, you do not use violence against any other body, you are uh, free to go your own way, your belief, your rituals, your way of dressing, your way of believing, whatever, right? So, uh, from a Muslim government or from a government in a Muslim society, I would expect to be a truly secular, that means not using any kind of oppression against any other religious texts, to be impartial in between them, to be equal distance. Uh, to be at equal distance from different segments of the society, different mazai, different schools of uh, religion, etc. 
all I expect from a Muslim government is to make sure that individual rights and liberties are there, to make sure that our borders are protected from oppression, from uh, uh, invasion, from outside powers, and internal uh, security. As long as I am guaranteed my security uh, of life, security of borders, and as long as the government is there for rule of law, for justice, to implement to implement the contracts, then that's all. I do not expect any other thing. As a Muslim, I can choose my way of uh, being a Muslim. I can choose my uh, school of thought, school of uh, jurisprudence, or school of uh, faith, whatever. Uh, and there is no nothing wrong with this. Allow people go their own way and so that they can make a full life out of what they have. They can use their resources productively if they have the free will, freedom of choice to go this way or that way, to live in a life this way or that way. If people are allowed to do that, I think they can make more out of life. They can live a more meaningful life. They can be become more responsible bodies so that they are ready to become to give their account on the day of judgment. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mustafa, for uh, tackling uh, this important question um, uh, in details and explaining your position about uh, the role of religion and state being uh, being separate. Our next question, I think, relates to one of your comments when you mentioned just now about, uh, you know, you, you expressed some hope in with, with democracy in Muslim-majority societies. And although there are two questions in the in, in the question by Osman, but I would I would say that I think his main question is about democracy um, and um, how uh, ultimately Islamic politics, uh, which is uh, which we now see in many Muslim majority countries, are politically representative, democratically elected, but still uh, the you know they are they are bringing their own sort of challenges. Um, with with according to Usman, Islamic politics uh, fell to this vicious cycle. Ghanoushi seems uh, present uh, a shed of hope, but it's too early to tell. And this cycle reinforces traditionalism even even more. Yes, I, I think the question is uh, in command is quite clear. Over to you, Mustafa, please. Another good and tough question. Uh, the <laughs> how can you view the problem, the issue of democracy in the Muslim world? Is it something <laughs> uh, we can we can comfortably adapt? Comfortably say, okay, there is no problem for a Muslim to adapt a democracy and democratic rule of government, or is it something invented by? non-Muslims, kafir. <laughs> is it okay to use a tool to adapt an institution developed by non-Muslims or not? This is, you know, uh, an issue that has been debated uh, over centuries, right? Uh, to put a long story short, in my opinion, there is nothing inherent to democracy that is intrinsically incompatible with Islam. There is no clash or conflict between the basic tenets of democracy and the teachings of Islam. 
uh, in that regard, even if it is developed by non-Muslims, by some outside you know, countries, we can freely, as Muslims, freely adapt the democracy or democratic institutions and set the rule of law in our geography. In that way, I think we can see a much better Muslim world than today. You know, with some a few exceptions, let's take uh, organization of Islamic cooperation as the Muslim world, as an umbrella institution of the Muslim world. How many countries uh, are members of OIC? 57 countries. Okay, how many approximately people live in the world as Muslim? 1.5 billion people, the Muslim population in the world, all over the world, approximately 1.5 billion. Okay, 23% of the world population is Muslim, yet only 9, less than 10, 9% of world GDP is produced by the Muslim countries. We are almost, you know, uh, compromising 25%, uh, one-fourth of total world population, yet we are able to produce only 9% of uh, gross domestic product of the world. Why is this so, as you say? Because there is no rule of law, because there is no individual uh, rights and liberties guaranteed in many parts of the Muslim world, there is tyrannies, either civil or military dictatorships. There is no rule of law, there is no democracy. No people are feeling safe. Uh, once upon a time, uh, two, approximately two years ago, uh, we had a symposium in uh, here in uh, Najmet al-Bakan University. Uh, there is a prominent uh, Muslim scholar who made his career in the United States, a political scientist, okay? A social scientist, political uh, thinker, came uh, as a guest speaker, uh, plenary uh, session, if you like, opening uh, speech. We asked him, uh, sir, wh why are we not able to stop this brain drain, you know, uh, moving of the smart people from the Muslim world to the Western world. He said one single answer, because nobody feels safe in the Muslim world, okay? That is something, unfortunately, a disheartening reality. If we were able to make our countries where people can feel safe from danger, from oppression, oppression by other people or oppression by government, it doesn't, make, it doesn't matter. Uh, the situation would be much better. So the politicians, uh, politicians. Mustafa, uh, sorry, uh, sorry. Can I, can I intervene, uh, can I intervene? Yeah, uh, thank you. I think there is a, uh, there's a follow-up comment by Osman referring to his earlier question. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a genuine clarification. Uh, and I thought that before we go on into the direction of democracy versus Islam, we should come back to the specific issues of uh, Muslim majority societies today. That uh, I think the question is really that this compatibility question is now solved because and now we have moved on, we have adopted democracy, but a very statement was made in Turkish example, Turkish democracy, and, and whether the rules are present or not present, which weakens or 
you know, there's a, as you can see, uh, if Turkish democracy was similar to US, Erdogan could not have ruled after eight years, no matter how hard he tried. So it's a checks and balances on the democratic system itself, which um, yeah, the uh, which is being uh, discussed. It's is is not, I think, not the democratic system it, itself. Maybe we can, maybe as a Turkish scholar, you can comment on that situation from theoretical and and political point of view, if you like. In fact, Turkey is a good example of how a Muslim country, Muslim majority country, can adapt democracy and the rule of law and secularism, yet Muslim rulers can govern the country. So we adapted democracy, free and just elections, and even though there has been a big resistance by the political establishment, previous political establishment, to block the Muslims coming into power, Therefore, in the last 50 years, half a century, we had four different military intervention to the system, right? They banned political parties developed by the Muslim conservative religious uh, social segments. Yet, in the end, thank God, in the end, democracy ruled, the Erdogan and his followers, that party, came into power after so many, you know, uh, harsh times, battles, civil unrest, uh, military interventions to the system, etc., et in the end, at the end of 2002, uh, they came to power. As a result of democratic processes, free and just elections, and then they won election after election. That means people, the majority of the people are happy what they are doing, how they rule the country, etc., etc. But somehow, in recent years, especially after the eruption of the the Arab Spring, so to speak, right? When uh, Turkish foreign policy started to go in conflict between the demands of the Western powers or the big uh, political powers or, or military powers or you know global powers, if you like, who have some calculations over the Middle East, over Syria, over Iraq, over Saudi, over uh, Turkey, etc. Then problems uh, started to erupt. So somehow, maybe there are some, you know, something that is done in a wrong way by uh, here the uh, rulers in Turkey, but I think the majority uh, of the factors are arising from the international situation, Syria crisis, who is going to dominate over the region, who is going to control Iraq, who is going to control Syria, who is going to take power uh, if there is going to be a regime change, etc. Et Turkish demands, calculations, did not match with the demands of the Western powers, especially United States and the Europe, then started the problem started. We had certain uh, internal, you know, conflicts, civil unrest, etc., etc., uh, either perpetuated or supported directly or indirectly by the Western powers. Then we had a very terrible military intervention uh, attempt in 15th of uh, July 2016. That is the worst and the most terrible 
cheap attempt Turkey had ever seen, perpetrated or organized by a, a religious, uh, you know, thought to speak religious movement. Uh, and the, the leader is, uh, has been living in the United States. Unfortunately, somehow we did not manage or did not, were not able to solve the conflict, internal conflict and the external conflict in a way to uh, step up peace and uh, stability once again. We are still facing the problems that is coming after following the coup attempt uh, two years ago, from two, two years ago. There are many problems, internal problems as well as foreign policy related problems. Turkey had to militarily intervene into northern uh, part of Syria as uh, they say, Operation Olive Oil. These are something that is not desirable. Deep. I wish we did not have Syrian conflict to become a big multi-dimensional international crisis as this way and millions of people have to flew out of their country more than three million of them uh, live in Turkey as asylum. These are human tragedy, political tragedy, economic tragedy, psychological trauma, uh, sociological trauma. These are very, very, you know, um, something uh, that is undesirable, that is very disheartening. These are all related with Turkey becoming as a regional power, standing on itself and then following more dependent foreign policy compared to the previous decades as a NATO member, as a uh, US ally, as a EU member state, Turkey had a different course of foreign policy in the past decades. But after Erdogan and AK Parti came into power some 16 years ago, over the course of time, they changed the policy, the, the, the foreign policy priorities, and then they started to uh, follow a more independent foreign policy. At that time, then they challenged, uh, you know, uh, as the one minute occasion, you know, one minute occasion uh, against Israel, and then some other challenging uh, conflict uh, between Turkey and US, Turkey and EU, etc. Then Erdogan became the target. Uh, Turkey became the target of uh, the some political, international, uh, global powers, and unfortunately, we are facing the difficulties coming out of this battle, the conflict within, as well as the neighboring geography. It is not Erdogan's job or duty or responsibility is not something easy, very difficult. Turkey has a limited power in terms of militarily, economically, politically, etc., etc. Yet, they want to become a more independent uh, Muslim power, if you like, Muslim country uh, in the Middle East, emerging as a regional power, yet these uh, demands are conflicting with the big powers calculations. That's why uh, they are throwing uh, up a lot of problems into Turkey. Thank you, Mustafa. Uh, you have a, certainly a, a viewpoint um, which we respect. Uh, maybe you, from some of the comments, we can see that the others uh, have uh, different viewpoints, but that's understandable. We have 
two questions on the row. One is more on the future strategy in terms of the orientation, but I would park that question towards the end of discussion and I would you to maybe address that question later. But there is a specific question on, on Malaysia. Being in Malaysia, I will just uh, briefly comment on that and then we will turn back to our main discussion. And a good thing is that this question has, of course, that angle of religion and politics, which uh, we have been uh, discussing. And of course, Malaysia is another Muslim majority country in terms of the, the, the democratic experience. Next month, uh, 9th of May, uh, Malaysia will be conducting 14th general elections. What is interesting in Malaysian political history is that it is perhaps the only Muslim majority country which has uh, run consistent elections uh, since the country was founded. Yet the other side of the political development is that since its foundation is only one party, uh, it is the same party which has been ruling Amno. Uh, United Malay National Organization and now it is called as a coalition called Barisan National. Although there are several political parties in, in Malaysia, but this is the only party which has won all the elections. The party for the first time uh, lost in popular vote in the previous year 2013, yet it was able to win a uh, number of seats. In terms of number of seats, it still has comfortable majority. It is clear that you know many of the recent developments in terms of legislation, in terms of political actions, indicate that Malaysia represents an illiberal democracy. Uh, there is a democracy which is functioning in terms of elections, but it is clearly an illiberal uh, democracy at this point in time um, uh, because uh, the dominant major party uh, has been able to use its power to change, for instance, uh, constituency limitations at the last time. They announced this year that any voter who were registered in year 2018 could not vote in the elections, which is due uh, next month. They announced elections uh, midweek mid on Wednesday, uh, just to sort of uh, minimize the voters' turnout. And uh, there are similar other examples which can be given uh, to say that this is unfortunately more not a very liberal uh, democracy. Having said that, the question is about whether the current coalition has used religious rhetoric as a tool to achieve more power. The main religious party, the Islamic party pass, uh, is actually now separate. It's out of the coalition from the ruling. And they, there's like what they call in Malaysia a three-corner fight. And so that is now one grand ruling opposition alliance. And the second is the uh, ruling alliance versus the opposition alliance, Pakatan Harapan, which is led by former Prime Minister Dr. Mahathir. And the Islamic party, uh, which was using the most of the religious rhetoric, is actually out of these two major alliances and some analysis some analysts have put the third Islamic party as sort of a kingmaker and um, uh, so, so it depends on the on, on how what the votes would swing. So to answer this question, I would submit that the ruling coalition has not used uh, extensively religious rhetoric. However, they have used a fear factor that uh, saying that, okay, if they are not going to win elections, then implicitly Chinese would take over and therefore there is this Malay supremacy, uh, Bumiputra agenda, which is in place. 
So that is the sort of driving factor in uh, in terms of the, the the Malaysian politics recently. I think uh, we can we can perhaps now turn back to um, to our original conversation. These are the examples. I mean, these are all the very relevant uh, uh, discussion in terms of uh, when we started from religion, uh, when we started from two two school of reason and uh, school of tradition. And perhaps we this is the time to come uh, to come back. Um, to this question of strategy, which Musa Yusuf has asked in terms of what needs to be done to change the orientation of young Muslims in particular, also in concerning their education system. And uh, yeah, so maybe uh, we can turn back to that question now and see more at an intellectual level. Before that, let me say a few words on NSI, uh, Usman Sain's question. He made a point that even though he is not a pro he has not a problem with democracy, but democracy is not the perfect ruling, you know, system. Yes, of course. Uh, in my opinion, there is not perfect, the ultimate perfect uh, political regime on earth, because democracy as well as other types of governments, uh, monarchy, you know, meshrutia, uh, whatever, are all developed by human beings. It is not godly given. It is not sacred, it is not untouchable, right? Democracy is not the perfect way of governing, maybe, but comparatively, relatively speaking, it is the best among the alternatives. What are the other ones? Military dictatorships, civil dictatorships, uh, monarchy, etc., uh, etc. Et Democracy is the least bad one, the Ahwali share in Islamic terminology, you know? A better of the battles. <laughs> so, uh, yes, democracy is not uh, perfect, yet it is much preferable to others. Number one. Second, Turkish democracy is not a stable and settled, finalized one. Let's keep that in mind. As I mentioned, yeah, it is very different from US democracy. It is different from Western European democracies. Remember, as I mentioned before, we had four, uh, no, more than four, five military interventions in the last 50 years. That means one military intervention in approximately every 10 years. So how can you talk about a stable, set up, finalized uh, instrument, institutionalized democracy? We have problems in terms of setting up the democracy with all its means and institutions. But it would be not fair to blame the responsibility just on the shoulders of Erdogan. Yes, Erdogan might be doing something wrong in terms of, you know, some uh, democratic uh, practices, but yet Turkish democracy before Erdogan was not a perfect one. We are still in the shaping the democracy, setting up the democracy, if I were uh, Erdogan, I would go a different way. I would do things much later than he is now trying to do. Timing is a problem. The military, economic, political capacity of the country is uh, an issue to think about. And the way of dealing with things, solving problems, is, is a different issue. Uh, in that regard, I am not uh, saying that the current government is doing everything perfectly, yet it is not their, their uh, fault. It is not just their fault 
if we have still problems in terms of democracy, in terms of democratic institution, the rule of law, constitution, the laws, etc., etc., it is not the fault of the current governments. They might be doing something wrong, yes, we should put that. At the same time, we have to consider the history of democracy in Turkey in the last uh, century since the fall of Ottoman Empire. Let's keep that in mind. Second, uh, okay, we cannot expect everything from the current politicians, political leaders, to do everything right in time uh, and uh, doing a perfect way so that we can get rid of our problems and that's it. It is impossible. So, what can we do is two things at the same time, two processes. One, keeping pressure on the current rulers, warning them, demanding them to behave in accordance with democratic institutions and the rule of law, on the one hand, you know, better governance, if you like, on one hand, at the same time, making investments for the future of the uh, community, for the future of the country, and among them, education comes first. Education is the most important determining factor in terms of uh, generating younger next generation to be skilled, better uh, able to do things uh, in a way that can overcome the problems that we currently suffer from, that can be ready for the challenging uh, issues of the, of the future. So we should start changing the structure, infrastructure of the whole education system instead of uh, memorization, instead of giving the readily made homemade bread or, you know, the final information, the truth, the right things, right answers to the questions readily available to the young brains, we should teach them how to reach information, teach them to be critical of when they see something, when they find something, when they look at something, to be critical of, instead of taking it as is, without any criticism. We should look at our scores in terms of PISA exams, international exams, how are our generations, our young you know, students, uh, elementary level students, secondary school, high school, and university level students, how they are doing in terms of international, uh, you know, friends. In which areas are we doing good, better? In which areas we are lacking? And we should take all the measures bravely, okay? Criticizing ourselves at the first hand, changing something, the way we teach things, the way we give information, the way we raise our young generations, then we can hope in the 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years from now, a better generation, a better able to, ready to face the challenges of our time. So, it is not only politicians who are expected to correct the things. Yes, they are, of course, they are responsible in ruling the country, they are responsible in taking decisions, they, they are, uh, they have the, uh, you know, big responsibility on their shoulders, yet it is not only politicians, it is academicians, it is bureaucrats, it is uh, intellectuals, 
it is journalists, it is especially religious scholars that also should do something to make the society better, right? Uh, just just waiting for the rulers to be correct guys, to be to become right guys, to make the right decisions right on time, it is too optimistic. We have been suffering a lot of political, military, technological, economic problems already. We do not have a bright uh, democratic history. We had uh, suffered five different military interventions in the last 50 years and then expecting the current rulers uh, as the perfect cause is not fair, in my opinion. There are a lot of things, not only politicians, but also academics, scholars, religious uh, people, uh, enlightened people's uh, scholars, how to do so that we can hope for a better future for our uh, generations. Thank you. Thank you, Mustafa. I think uh, when you were talking about in particular education system, you mentioned about uh, the role of uh, critical thinking and the change in terms of uh, educational landscape, the curriculum as a strategy to win that battle again, which according to you, the battle was lost to Anwadis and Anwar Rai uh, lost the battle. And uh, now you're saying that to win that battle again, which will help uh, the progress in Muslim Muslim majority societies in general, we need to invest uh, and um, sort of uh, change the direction of education system. This may be the last question of uh, the, the webinar because I don't see other questions or comments uh, in, in the chat box. And this last question is just probing you further on the education landscape because you are an educationist yourself. You have spent lifetime in the education uh, dealing with young people. Uh, do you see any change happening in last 15, uh, 20 years, or 25 years, which will make you more hopeful or less hopeful if you want to see, uh, okay, this is the young generation, we want to change the education system so that we can again win, win the battle, Anul uh, Rai can win the battle again. Uh, in terms of spe specifically uh, educational, Okay, thank you, Ali, for asking these good questions, which has, you know, implications, deep uh, implications uh, in every aspect of life. Am I optimistic or pessimistic about the future of our world uh, when it comes to educational issues and uh, the things that, that the, the social, political, and uh, at the global level, how things develop? Okay, I am optimistic, first of all. I am a, a perpetual optimistic, they say, because globalization, many of us do not like globalization. There are harsh criticism across the Muslim world against globalization, but at the same time, Yes, there might be some, you know, negative implications of the process of globalization, which is more controlled uh, by the, you know, big powers, if you like. But at the same time, we have to see the fact that the information or the knowledge is as cheap and it is extremely easy, extremely fast to reach it. To, it is accessible. Education in every time, in every sense, is much more accessible now, today, in our world, 
compared to a few decades ago. Information, knowledge is already there and it is almost free of charge, right? It is easy to access, it is free of charge, it is fast. That is a bounty of the globalization portion of internet technology, long distance education possibilities, and information sources out there available, readily available, free of charge. It is extremely, it was extremely difficult for us, even for a scholar, even for an academician, 30 years ago, if you want to write on something, it, it was very difficult to reach the right sources. There were only a few books, a few, you know, big reference books at the library, even at the capital city of Turkey, Ankara or Istanbul or big cities. Uh, there were only a few universities and then it would take almost uh, weeks, not only days, it would take weeks for you to go from your uh, town, uh, your city, to up uh, the, the, the big major city, Istanbul, Ankara, and then to write on something, it would take ages. Now, now we have computers, personal computers. We have the uh, internet connection. <laughs> I am told, I'm trying to share my uh, thought, my opinion on a critical issue all over the world uh, through, you know, uh, an organization uh, in Kuala Lumpur. I am sitting in uh, Konya, Turkey. Now we are sitting in uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And uh, I am sure these, these guys asking questions are sitting somewhere else uh, in the world. It is a big bounty. Same thing for when we raise uh, our children, even before their uh, teachers at school, uh, their school, their uh, professors at the university, they can now have, they can reach much more information than they are going to be given at school. And then if we can also mobilize and motivate them to be a, a speed readers, if you like. Speed readers, that means you can uh, read a book on an overnight. The, you know, 200, 300 pages overnight, it is possible. If you can, for, for instance, teach your, uh, your students, young boys, young girls, uh, to, be, to become a speed reader, then they can become more knowledgeable than their professors at the university, and then they become critical. You know, hey, professor, you are saying this and that, but I read something different on the issue. For example, this and that. <laughs> that means now there is the door, the landscape is much more friendly and much more compatible, much more ready to become critical thinker and to have access, easy access, fast access to knowledge, to information, pieces of information, and then to become in a position to compare, to reject or accept, to compare, to see the alternatives. All we need to do is Okay, do not close our borders, do not close open borders, do not shut down the satellite dishes, do not block uh, the social media, uh, internet access, etc. Allow people to have access to information, to log into internet, to make use of the facilities right over there, and then, and then motivate them to be more critical when they come to school they should be ready to okay 
to compare and contrast what they hear and choose among them instead of dictating them okay this is the right information on the issue and stop this is the final thing that you could get this is somehow more traditional way there is one truth and this is i know as a professor and you as the student you are expected to accept what your professor said now we should get rid of this mentality and we become more open to criticism we as professors as intellectuals as scholars as teachers should become more open to criticism more flexible instead of giving the uh, uh, quote-unquote right information on an issue to the student teach them how to reach the information how to make research how to criticize how to compare and contrast how to become a critical uh, person so that they can make their own way they can reach the information if we can do this as a political leader as a teacher as a scholar make life easier for the students to have access to information, to internet technology, to television, to satellite dishes, to alternative sources of information, then trust them or rely on them that they can make reasonable judgments, they can raise themselves, and then they become better able to be ready to face the challenges of our time. Thank you. Thank you, Mustafa, for um, ending at um, an optimistic note. I think you have attributed that technology and globalization offer more hope for for societies in, gen in general. But obviously, we were talking in in the context of Muslim societies, and it is iron ironical. And I I must end here by observing that in in many countries, including Iran and and also Turkey, and during the crisis time, uh, some of these technology and social media platforms uh, are also banned. It's not a unique phenomenon. It, it happens in China, in South America, Russia, also. but since we are talking here in particularly Muslim societies, we should at least acknowledge these uh, limitations. And um, we yeah, hope that we can improve the status of general freedoms available in our societies. With this note, I would thank you again. Uh, have a good day. Uh, Thank you. Have a nice time. And thank you for inviting again. Uh, thank you all, Ali, and all the uh, listeners and the contributors as well. Thank you very much. This webinar is brought to you by Islam and Liberty Network. If you are looking for more, you can find it on our website at islamandlibertynetwork.org. And if you want to help us, there is a donation button on the site. Thank you for your support, and we hope you found it interesting.